Our scripture reading this morning is from 1 Thessalonians 5, 19 through 28. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything, holding fast what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful, and he will surely do it. Brothers, pray for us. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. The grace of God, our Lord Jesus Christ, be with you. This is God's word. This is our last message in 1 Thessalonians. And uh, one-liners like this, I mean, if you're looking at, a, at, at an actual biblical page, you see these one-liners. It may look a little different if you're looking electronically, but a one-liner passage like this, you'd think it'd be easier to preach because it's, you know, this line is do not and this line is do. And I find it actually rather difficult to preach uh, passages like this, difficult in organizing it into a message. I told the first service, and I guess it bears repeating for the second here, that when you, um, when you listen to a, a, a sermon, this is, this is uh, kind of uh, insider uh, mechanics of preaching, uh, you're hearing two things, hopefully two things. You're hearing a message that you hear reinforced all the way through the, the sermon, and that's your takeaway, but you're also hearing teaching. And while the entire congregation needs to get the message, not everybody's gonna get the teaching, which is not an elitist statement, uh, but it's just, it's just the reality of hearing spoken, uh, a spoken message. So the difficulty in teaching a passage with a bunch of one-liners is that you can move from line to line and teach and teach, but you never get, it never gets fused into a message. There's never this sense of, okay, what's all that about? I've taken away this and that, and I liked what he said there, and I didn't like what he said there, and that, that's just common too, as it goes. Uh, but what was the message? And so my attempt here this morning is to put these lines, there's 10 to 12 lines, depending on how you count them, under two headings. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, I don't know what you observe or not in your home. Please don't be offended if, if I give you a trick-or-treating analogy, if that's not something you do. We've, we've been okay with that. Uh, maybe that ruined our kids. Maybe that's it. Maybe that's what it was. They, they trick-or-treated and we shouldn't have let them do that. Uh, but when our kids bring their take home from the neighborhood, uh, historically, Lens had them poured all out. There's a, then we teach about taxation. Uh, the government takes this part. That's the daddy tax in this case. Uh, but when they pour their take out, and this year it was kind of fun. It was my grandson and our foster daughter, uh, Lil Zorian, and... Uh, and our youngest, who's 13, but still wanted to go out with his cousins. And they brought whole, uh, you know, pillowcases home and went back out. They found behind us a family was giving out king size uh, bars and they went back and hit that house two or three times. Um, when Lynn would have our kids pour out their trick-or-treating take, since this is fresh on our minds from last night, uh, she would separate the piles. One would be a chocolate pile and the other would be a fruity candy pile, and that's not because Lynn's overly organized. Uh, 
it's because she said, you know, if you keep the candy together, the fruity candy does something to the chocolates. And so when you're still trying to eat on the chocolates into January, you know, which you are, when you have five kids that are trick-or-treating, um, it doesn't taste as good. It makes the chocolate kind of go stale. And so she would put the chocolate pile and the fruity candy pile, and then, they would, and then we would hide it from them and divvy it out, you know, as, as needed so it didn't end up under beds and places. But I'm going to do that with these 10. This is kind of like um, at the end of 1 Thessalonians, Paul is just sort of put into our bag <laughs> all this stuff. And it's all good and it's all Christ. He looks like everything here in action. Jesus did all this before us or didn't do it. It's the case maybe if it's a do not. And so I want to put this under di discernment and devotion. That's, that's going to be our two categories. You can decide which one's chocolatey and which one's fruity. I'll leave that to you. Uh, but we're going to talk about discernment and we're going to talk about devotion. And the reason I go with discernment is because we've got in the um, verse 21, you've got that reference to testing everything and hold fast to what's good. And when you look at uh, the original wording of that, the word for good in concert with test everything conveys, well, it was a word they used for telling difference between a counterfeit coin and a real coin of the realm. Uh, this was that word for good. And so there's powers of discernment in being able to tell the difference between what's legitimate and what's not. And then uh, verse 23 to the end is devotion. May the Lord God, Father of Jesus Christ, sanctify you completely. That means to be set apart. And devotion seems to be a good word that captures that. So two headings for these closing lines. We'll look at verses 19 through 22 under the heading of discernment. And then we'll look at verses 20 through the end under the heading of, uh, of devotion. And, and that's to try to get the message the message here is about discernment and devotion, the call of God upon us to discern, to learn how to do that, to put that into practice, and the call upon us to uh, devote ourselves to the great work of God in and for us, what he's already doing for us and will accomplish. So let's take discernment first. Verses 19 through 22, do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophecies, test everything. Hold fast to what is good, including prophecies, just in this immediate context. We'll talk about what that's about. Hold fast to what's good. Verse 22, abstain from every form of evil. There's a very common contrast between good and evil. How do we discern that? How do we learn how to discern? There's actually a long history of the people of God learning discernment. And it's a little surprising how God taught his people that back in uh, the time of Moses. Remember the law of Moses, the Old Testament. There's certain laws in the law of Moses. It, it coded things like, don't put two kinds of fabrics together. You ever read that law? It's kind of an odd law, especially to moderns. We go, what, what in the world is that about? Same law said, uh, don't sow two kinds of seed in the same field. And there were other distinction laws and separation laws. And again, moderns, particularly with the fabrics, and you'll get it used against you sometimes if you're active in sharing your faith. You know, they'll say, well, yeah, isn't uh, the same Bible that, that, that says uh, LGBT is, is not allowed is the same Bible that says you can't wear a poly, a poly cotton blend, you know? So, and they just sort of toss it all out. Well, what's going on uh, there in those passages, we look at it as moderns and go, what could possibly be wrong with mixing fabrics? 
And the answer is nothing. It's never been wrong. It wasn't wrong then. It was wrong for them in that the law about mixing fabrics and sowing two kinds of seed, it was not for itself. It was an object lesson. It was aimed at teaching the people of God how to make distinctions. Now, why? Why is that so important? Because the people of God are, by definition, set apart to him. That's that word sanctify in verse 23. I'm set apart for his use. I'm set apart for his purposes, his glory. That requires that we make distinctions. The old Levitical law about the two kinds of fabrics was in pursuit of discernment. By teaching the people of God back then, more ethnically constructed, the people of Israel, But the people of God now, multi-ethnic, Jew and Gentile both, we're still learning discernment, how to pursue that, and it requires we learn how to make distinctions. In our case, distinctions between good and evil, distinctions between light and dark, distinctions between what's wise and what's foolish, what's true and what's false, and also realizing there are shades of nuance at times. At times, not every distinction leads to a binary choice. It's either this or that. Sometimes there is this gray in between. And and a lot of times it's, I don't even know that the scripture addressed this decision before me. So there's a long history of teaching the people of God to make distinctions. That's the better part of discernment and practice. Discernment requires me to make certain distinctions. Now that said, discernment can be a little tricky in a fellowship where it involves matters of conscience, matters of permissible difference. Even as I said a few moments ago, you know, if, if, if trick-or-treating, if Halloween is something that is verboten in your home and you think discerning Christians should all make that choice, obviously not all discerning Christians. You may think, well, you're not very discerning because you haven't made the same choice I have. But there are these matters, permissible differences. I talked about it a couple years ago when we went through Romans. And it can be tricky in fellowship because even the determinations of what we make a matter of permissible difference or a matter of biblical conformity can involve clashing discernments. But when we look again at verses 19 through 22, particularly verse 22, abstain from every form of evil. Just take that one for a moment. Abstain from every form of evil. Every form of evil. You go, well, that's really comprehensive. That covers the waterfront, every form of evil. And yet, Scripture doesn't spell out for me at every turn what every form of evil may be. Scripture gives me big categories. Scripture gives me certain specifics. But it doesn't tell me at every turn what evil, every form of evil, evil can take, may be. So we have to cultivate discernment. There's a number of ways that you do that. You cultivate discernment certainly by knowing the word of God, having a, a knowledge of what God has communicated and said and what he wants. Uh, we learn discernment by learning to submit to the authority of God, the authority structure of the church. Uh, we learn to discern through fellowship with other believers, particularly by getting to know believers we consider wiser or, or have wisdom to offer us and we want to learn from them. We even learn from foolish believers, you know, warnings to heed, as well as examples to follow. We learn to discern by seeking actively to keep in step with the Spirit of God, as the New Testament enjoins us to. But even then, when it comes to every form of evil, we may not always draw our lines in exactly the same place every time. 
When you look at the history of the church, you see uh, just in the proliferation of denominations, you say, well, why are there thousands of denominations? There are literally thousands of denominations around the world. And oftentimes, the genesis of a denomination forming was a group in a, another expression of, of the faith uh, felt that those in it weren't uh, conforming enough to Scripture, were conforming maybe to the world, and, and so they separated. They were looking for greater purity, greater purity of belief or doctrine or greater purity of fellowship, protection from the corruptions of the world and from those corruptions encroaching on the church. I've known many Christians through the years who've had deep concerns for the purity of the church. I've even had Christians uh, leave my ministry through the years because they didn't consider me discerning enough in some matter of concern that was important to them. I, I took a different view or uh, just didn't take the same view they took or wouldn't enforce the thing they wanted enforced and, and that meant goodbye. I think it's important to acknowledge that as we get into discerning and what discernment involves of us, how it's cultivated, I think it's important to acknowledge that we don't all draw our lines in the same places when it comes to permissible differences over where one believer considers something like um, a drink of alcohol or a rock concert acceptable for them. And another believer says, no, that's evil. I, I couldn't do that. I don't think any Christian should do that. We've, we've got these kinds of differences. Uh, we do. And we have to acknowledge that. But still, we're told to abstain from every form of evil. And so that implies that there's an agreed upon center in how we uh, conduct ourselves in Christ that we all sort of pull from and recognize there is such a thing as good and there is such a thing as evil and God has an interest in good and an interest in overcoming evil, per per uh, perpetuating good and overcoming evil. When I was uh, looking at this passage this week about testing everything, I thought there's, you know, there's something else in the New Testament. I had to look it up and it was 1 John chapter 4. It's been nine years since I taught 1 John, so you forget stuff in nine years. But there's a similar line in 1 John. This is 1 John 4, 1 if you want the reference. You don't have to turn there. But John calls us to test the spirits. So Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5, test everything. In the, in, and he puts it in the, in the context of prophecies. Uh, somebody giving you something that, that they say is from God, the revelation of God, either pointing to it in scripture or saying, the Lord is, is, is telling me this, or the Lord is leading me in this direction. That would all frame under prophecy, which can be a little bit of an elastic word. But John, another apostle says later in his letter, test the spirits. Here's the full sentence. Beloved, don't believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out in the world. So he gives us, don't quench the spirit, verse 19. Paul does. And then John says, test the spirits. Paul says, test everything. John says, recognize that not everything is working for, for uh, the purposes of glorifying God. There are competing spirits lowercase s in the world. I, I, um, this author, you probably don't know, uh, he has a memorable name, Robert C. Roberts. You know, mom went with simple. Uh, Roberts is already the last name, let's just go with Robert. And uh, he wrote a book decades ago called The Strength of a Christian. 
And here he, he says in this, I, I thought this is a commendable uh, paragraph. He says, the trouble with loving the things of the Spirit, capital S, Holy Spirit. And so when you look at verse 19, don't quench the Spirit. Don't put out his fire. Don't douse his light. Love the things of the Spirit. Pursue the things of the Spirit. Because when you do that, you're pursuing the things of Christ. So Robert C. Roberts, I love to say that name, comes along and he says, yeah, but the trouble with loving the Spirit and the things of the Spirit, capital S Spirit, is the Holy Spirit isn't the only Spirit around. John told us that. Test the spirits. It goes along with this. He says the Holy Spirit, Robert says, is in competition with a lot of other spirits. That's his way of putting it. It's, it's you know, you could put it another way, but we get the gist. And some of the spirits competing with the Spirit of God look like they come from God. They look as if they might be life-giving spirits. This is Robert C. Roberts' words. They feel as if they might be comforting spirits. The spirit of personal ambition, for example can look like holy zeal. The spirit of aesthetic pleasure can feel like adoration of God. The spirit of envy can sound like the hunger for equity. What's more, these spirits show up at church and compete with God for our loyalty. When we embrace them, we commit idolatry, but perhaps unconsciously, given uh, their wide influence. In any case, what we clearly need is a particular gift of the Holy Spirit, namely the ability to discern, to identify, to tell apart, to disentangle what's not of God from what is. I think that's well said. The question then is how do we do it? That's always the pressing question. How do we not quench the Spirit not despise prophecies, but test everything, including what somebody says comes from the Lord, and hold fast to the good and abstain from every form of evil. Just taking these first four lines under this consideration. How do we uh, practice discernment then? How do we put it to good use? Well, let me, let me put it in categories of offense and defense, thinking football here. There's an, offense, uh, an offensive practice of discernment Offense is moving the ball down the field. And there's a defensive practice of discernment. And if you're looking at verses 19 to 22, verses 19 and 20 roughly approximate to the offense of discernment. And then verses 21 and 22, the defense of discernment. Let me see if I can uh, put that more clearly for you. Take verse 19, this word for quench. Don't quench the spirit. Now, we're to love the things of the Spirit of God. We're to keep in step with the Spirit. We're to uh, seek his fire. Uh, his fire and light are the two images most often associated with the Holy Spirit of God in Scripture. Uh, by the way, if you, if you want um, a helpful study, uh, if you've got a Bible study group and you're getting toward the holidays here and maybe you're completing a study and you're thinking of the new year, J.I. Packer's book, Keep in Step with the Spirit, would be a great study. I would commend to any little Bible study group that wants to uh, look at something more in depth. The Holy Spirit, we tend to think as evangelicals a lot about God the Father, a lot about God the Son, and not a lot about God the Holy Spirit. And yet, <laughs> there's an aspect to that that is just the way the Holy Spirit wants it. Because one of the analogies that Packer draws upon in his book, Keeping Step of the Spirit, is that the Spirit is like a floodlight. When you come across a building at night, well, our own building here, 
Uh, you maybe have never noticed that there are floodlights, one right out there, I can see it back there, and another one on this side, powerful lights that when you're coming up on this building at night are shining on our columns and up to our steeple. In fact, somebody sent me last year, they made a picture of our steeple at night and the moon was full and right over the top of the steeple. So I made that my home, my home page. Um, your eye is purposefully lifted up as you drive up 735 to 735 Ridge Lake Boulevard, your eye is lifted. You don't look at the lights themselves, the big powerful spotlights on either side of the front part of our building. You look at what they're shining on. And Packer says that's what the Spirit does with Jesus. He has a floodlight ministry. Again, fire and light. Don't quench the Spirit. Don't douse the flame. Don't put out the light. Seek this. Seek the Spirit's ministry. Seek his filling. Seek his correction. Seek uh, his putting the spotlight on Jesus. We're going to have communion uh, in just a little bit from now. And one of the things that Jesus talked about the night when communion was, uh, was, was uh, put into effect was the ministry of the Holy Spirit, that I'm going away, Jesus said, but the comforter, he called him, is going to come and he's going to lead you into everything of me. That's what the Holy Spirit does. This is what moves the ball for the church. The Spirit ignites our passion for the gospel. The Spirit puts a floodlight on Jesus but we can put out both. We can douse the fire. We can uh, put out the light of the spirit when we give anything or anyone else the attention or allegiance we should reserve for Jesus. And that happens. It happens a variety of ways. The church can get easily preoccupied. Certainly it happens during political seasons. Uh, if you ever look to a national authority, a party or a person or a platform to protect the church or advance the church, that's, that's not necessary. Jesus does that for his church. Jesus alone, he doesn't need help. Um, he can use authorities uh, to do good for his people. He certainly can. And he can also use authorities to discipline the church, to bring us back to our first love. But those times throughout history where the church has actually been the most powerful in its witness are just those times when it's been most opposed. And you can look at the power of the witness of the church and the Areas where it's persecuted today, as we prayed for earlier, and see that, I mean, you, I've sat in, uh, in with brothers in India, been there a few times, and listened to them tell stories about being the, the first convert in their village. There's no cultural backdrop. Their village is actually run by radical Hindus. And so they've just now put themselves in the position to be opposed and more than opposed, even hurt, and their business hurt, and their family hurt. And they say, and yet I would not trade the darkness I lived in under Hinduism for anything of my new faith. And you, you get around that and you say, how could we export some of that over here? I mean, it's powerful to be around Christians like that. They change you. They do change you. Nowadays, the church here in the West, we're more under threat from each other. Christians are turning on one another too easily. We're abandoning one another. We're setting up churches for just ourselves. You know, this is the church for the cool people. This is the church for the young people. This is the church for the old people. This is the church for the people who like the organs. This is the church for people who like the guitars. And, and there's not this cohesive sense of the church really moving in lockstep with the Spirit of God because we have all these competing allegiances. And 
And that says the state of our discernment is not really that strong. Um, discernment will test everything. And the way we tend to test everything is does this measure up to what I want? Does this measure up to what I'm about? Does this measure up to how I've defined myself, me, myself, and I? Discernment will test everything not for becoming overly, overly scrupulous and hard to edify. It will test everything for keeping in the center what belongs there. What gives the maximum glory and honor? What gives the, the maximum um, magnification and amplification to Jesus Christ as Lord of his church? That's what we're about. That's our fundamental central concern. So don't quench the spirit. Also offensively moving the ball down the field. Don't, don't despise prophecies. And he says, test everything, verse 21, which would include prophecies. Now, if someone tells you something they believe comes from the Lord, listen. Listen carefully, but not uncritically. To not despise prophecies, let's just put the cookies on the very bottom shelf on, on this point. To not despise prophecies in the most simple consideration is to remain open to direction from the Lord, to want direction from the Lord, to seek direction from the Lord, to seek wisdom, to seek discernment, to seek advancement of his gospel. And so um, as we do that, not despising prophecies, where that comes into it is that we have to be open to the Lord's direction. And he gives us his direction through his word. He gives his direction through the wisdom of his body through the leadership of, of his churches. See, that's how he gives his direction. And so we want that. So that's, we don't despise prophecies, but we also have to discern. And this is best done with others, not just this independent study. You know, I'm auditing your course. I'm, you know, we're, we're, we're in this together. And with wise others, we discern whether what I've heard, whether this person is telling me something they say is from the Lord, whether it is in fact. Now, how would we know? Well, there are certain tests you can apply. I'll give you just three. Uh, one will be the cohesion test. The other one will be uh, the non-contradiction test. And the last one will be the continuity test. I can give you these in just a couple of minutes. Don't despise prophecies. Test them. Test everything. Is it from God or not? Well, how would I, what, would, what kind of tests would I apply? Putting this in the context of prophecy. Somebody says, well, this is from the Lord. All right, if it is, the cohesion test says it's going to explain what's already come to me from God in his word, not, ex not, not expand on it. You can follow that. It's going to explain, am I getting an explanation of what God has already told me in his word or am I hearing an expansion on it? That's the cohesion test. Explanation and expansion are not the same in content or effect. An explanation of what God has already given me in his word is to promote greater faithfulness to God. In the avenues God has already established that faithfulness is to run in. And so an explanation of what God has already given us in his word will be aimed at, well, it will have certain results. It will promote the unity of the spirit. It will promote the bond of peace. It will promote the discipline of the church, that we're well-ordered, that our loves are ordered, It'll promote worship and adoration of God. That's what explanation should do. Doesn't always do that, but that's what it should do. Whereas expansion will get us off into speculations, 
peripheral preoccupations, rationalizations, becoming overly scrupulous and suspicious of other Christians, and with all that comes division. Division. Another test is the non-contradiction test. To not despise prophecies, just putting this in the simplest consideration, we could say a whole lot about this. We could, I, I don't even told you about the way prophecy is used in the New Testament and all that. But we're not despising prophecies when we're open the, to the direction of God. But we test it. But what do we test it against? Again, the word of God. It's foundational to us. The non-contradiction test recognizes God doesn't go back on his word. God's not getting better ideas than what he put here. God's not morally evolving. Uh, God is not keeping up with the times. Now, he's not stuck in the 16th century either. Okay? But he's not, he, he doesn't feel the compulsion that a lot of us feel to keep up with the moment, you know, and, and certain things Christians believe, well, that's embarrassing or that's, uh, that doesn't fit with the predominant spirit of the times. Yeah, that's, that's, that's how it is. It's been that way before. It'll be that way again as time goes on. The non-contradiction test, it doesn't compete with what God's already revealed. If something is of God, it won't contradict scripture. And last test is the continuity test. The continuity test simply looks back over history and says, have other people of God ever believed this? Have other people of God thought this was the way it was going to be? And, and what are those people of God like? Is there witness and, and, uh, and legacy? Is it credible? Is it something that I can put a lot of uh, weight on? So those are a few ways that we test everything seeking to hold fast to the good. This is offensive discernment. Not that it causes offense, it may, but that it moves the ball. I'm open to direction from the Lord that moves the ball downfield for greater faithfulness to Jesus. But now there's also defensive discernment. That comes into play. Verses 21 and 22, test everything, hold fast what is good, abstain from every form of evil. There's the familiar contrast, good and evil. And again, that's pretty comprehensive. Every form of evil, evil can take some very uh, subtle forms. Now, I happen to believe that um, motivation, our motives are never at any turn 100% pure in anything. That's not uh, to, you know, uh, douse with lemon juice uh, the good things that people do out of the goodness of their heart. It's to recognize that there's always something of sin shoots through even my best actions. It's just my nature. So uh, even if I'm trying to call attention to you and lift you up, I may be also trying to call attention to how good a job I'm doing in lifting you up. And that's, there's pride in that. There can be envy. There can be selfish ambition. Even vanity, which are all evil, destructive things in motivations that good work is coming out of. So I, I, don't, I don't spend a lot of time trying to scrutinize our, our motivations. Um, you think back to the writings of Paul. Think back to uh, Philippians chapter 1. Remember in Philippians 1 is the place, if you haven't read it in a while, there's a place in Philippians 1 where Paul says, he's writing from prison. And he says, it's true that some are preaching Christ out of selfish ambition, thinking they're going to cause me trouble here. In other words, 
They're preaching Christ, and he says, that's good. People are learning about the Lord through this, these ministries, and yet, these guys hate my guts. And yet, God is using them for his glory. Well, it happens. The cost of not abstaining from every form of evil is you'll think yourself too clever by half. In other words, um, you'll think you can't get deceived. If you allow room for evil, the guys who were preaching out of selfish ambition with one eye on Christ and one eye on making trouble for Paul, showing Paul that uh, their ministry was better than his, uh, eventually that takes you over. The worst part of your motivations, if you think you're managing them, evil is smarter than you. (laughs) The spirits, lowercase s, that compete with the spirit of God, They're watchers, and they know people cold. They've had centuries of observation on us. They know you. They know where your buttons are. They know your frailties. They know your weaknesses. They know because they're opportunistic, and they know how to help us justify and rationalize things that do not lead us to greater adoration of and devotion to Jesus. Let's go to the second heading, devotion. That's a little bit about discernment. Let's go to now verse 23 and begin to unpack a little bit devotion and then we'll go into communion under this. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. Sanctify means to be set apart, set apart for his use. Set apart. He took you out of all humanity. He took you and put you set apart to himself with others who are set apart to himself. Not an independent study. But we're set apart to him and that means that We're set apart to his usefulness, his purposes, uh, learning how to love him, learning how much he loves us, casting our cares upon him, seeing that he cares for us. All of this is involved in being sanctified. Verse 23, may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful He will surely do it. And then he has these closing exhortations. Pray for us. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. You know, it wasn't a pandemic uh, at the time he was uh, writing this. Uh, Masked kiss is fine, I guess. Uh, I remember uh, Warren Wiersbe, who's now with the Lord. My mother knew Warren Wiersbe. He used to be at Moody Church and and, uh, she took a trip to Israel. She and my grandmother with him uh, years ago. I just went to be with the Lord this year. Uh, Warren Wiersbe said he never forgave Kenneth Taylor for translating this in the living Bible, uh, give one another a, a, a holy handshake. <laughs> so, so it just isn't the spirit, it isn't the same, it doesn't read the same. But the holy kiss, is, it's not the kiss of betrayal, it's the kiss of we're, we're in this, we're, this is our family, we are a community, we are a household of faith. I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Looking at verse 23, devotion. Now, um, when you look at verse 23, you see, may God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And then what is you? You is uh, whole spirit and soul and body. And some people say, well, I thought we were just two parts, you know, body and soul. What is spirit doing here? What is the difference? Uh, And then, you know, Jesus talked about loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's four things, you know. So are we, is you a three-part person? Is it a two-part person? Is it a four-part person? A lot of ink and philosophical theology has been spilled. 
uh, working through that. Paul gives spirit here in addition to soul, and we focus on that. We say, what's the difference between spirit and soul? They, they seem so similar, and, and the difference is deli thin. I'll give it to you, but the Greek mind, when Paul writes this back in the day he writes it, he's writing it to people who when they went to school, they heard a lot about Plato. You've heard of Plato. Plato lived a few hundred years before Paul. Plato thought that people are basically souls imprisoned, that the body is evil, matter, physicality is evil, and the soul is pure. And so here's Paul saying whole spirit and soul and body, and there's probably some teaching he gave the Thessalonians behind this, but they are coming from a context of naturally hearing in their schools coming up, well, the soul is, the soul is evil, the, the, it's irredeemable. Or, I'm sorry, the body is irredeemable, it's, irrede- it's evil. The soul is, is who you are, it's the, it's the pure person. But Christians don't think that. And the reason we don't is, well, the incarnation. If the human flesh is itself evil, what in the world is God doing taking a body in the person of Christ? So God takes a body because human flesh is not evil, human matter is not evil. The incarnation of God was anti-Plato, anti-Platonic in that, in that sense. The human body is made in the image and likeness of God, which means we're distinct from all other creatures. I love my dog, Abel. He's a pit bull. We know the story. A lot of people know the story of how we got Abel. We weren't out looking for a pit bull, but uh, he came to us, and he is the gentlest, sweetest dog in the world. He's 65 pounds, and he got, I, last night I gave candy, I set, a, a, I set a pit fire in my driveway and a computer where the Wi-Fi could reach to watch football. And you, the guys that came up with their kids and wives and said, you've got the arrangement. I'd like to stay here, honey, is that all right? And the, the looks, I could see in the dark, they're getting cut like, your kids are trick-or-treating, you will come with us right now, this is more important. This guy's got it, you know. That's what I was doing. I gave out a lot of candy that way. What was I saying? Um, The dog was sitting on me. Thank you. I really appreciate the help. Thank you. He's 65 pounds, and so he was pressing, you know, and he had his head right here. And I know I was preaching this the next day. And I'm petting my dog, and and he's just a beautiful boy. And, And I'm... I'm realizing, you know, this dog will go to heaven. No, so this is my thought. Uh, but he doesn't have a soul, okay? And uh, dogs often help us get truth, so I'm, there's a point to this. My dog, as much as I love him, uh, I'm a unique creation from him. I have the image and likeness of God. I think God cares for creatures, all creatures. God cares for my dog, but he didn't give Abel a soul, The soul is who we are before God in our humanness. That's the easiest way to understand soul. You can be very philosophical with it. I could be very philosophical with it. Let's just say it's that. The soul is who we are before God in our unique creatureliness. There's a difference between me and Abel. It's not just that he's canine and I'm homo sapien. It's that I have a soul. That is, I am someone before God made in his image and likeness that my dog is not, even though my dog will go to heaven. He will. That'll be wonderful. Don't ask me to explain that, by the way. Don't, you know, that, I can just see the emails coming. I can't believe you. Um, but spirit, 
So soul is who I am before God. There's a, I'm going to give you a deli thin distinction here. We're slicing the ham really, really thin, but that's the way it is. Spirit is who we are accountable to God for our humanity. That seems to be the best way I know to take it from the research and study and such that I've done on this. Soul, who I am before God, my humanity, the uniqueness of who I am as a creature of God with his image and likeness. Spirit is my accountability to God for my humanity, what I do and don't with my body as I live here. Could be a lot more philosophical of that, but that's it. But from the language of verse 23, don't miss the message for the parts. What's the message? The message is devotion. The message is that the great project of God, the way God is attacking evil in and over the world is by drawing people to himself to be devoted to him without rival. And when that happens, we'll be devoted to one another in such a way that permissible differences, yeah, they'll be true of us, but they won't be in the way of us. Moving toward one another, working for one another, edifying one another, building one another up in Christ, being more forgiving, not less, more forbearing, bearing one another's burdens, giving the holy kiss rather than the kiss of the betrayer. You know why he says in verse 24, he who calls you is faithful, he will surely do it? because of what we do when we take communion. Let's segue now into communion from that thought using verse 24 as a segue. The place setting of the table, you've been handed your portion of the table when you came in. The place setting of the table, what it points to is that every time we take these elements together as the body of Christ, we reaffirm for ourselves as well as for one another as we see and know each other are taking these elements. I'm not the only person God has saved. You're not the only person God has saved. And so as we take these elements together, what are we saying? Jesus Christ is faithful. He will surely do it. Surely do it. What's he gonna do? He's gonna complete the work. He's gonna sanctify us completely. The goal of your salvation is glorification where you get to be more fully human than you are now. You get to be in a body that no longer is uh, uh, an instrument of sin. Your soul is no longer an object of wrath that God only has to judge. Your, Your spirit is no longer hopeless and hapless facing a holy God. You get the righteousness of Christ. When you take these elements, you are literally ingesting your faith. Not that the elements themselves Uh, convey any power or grace to us but that in the very fact of bringing this home we feed on the fact that Jesus is gracious to us we take this in in a real tangible way and the tangible way we do this that the truth of his faithfulness comes home to us that it's not a concept it's as fundamental to who we are as eating and drinking is that's the point if you don't eat and drink your body eventually shuts down If we don't have the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ in our column, in our favor, covering us, his mercy for my unrighteousness, his grace for my self-righteousness, Jesus Christ the righteous for me, if I don't have that, well, then I'll be shut out. And that's nothing that any of us would want. But we do want that in our sin. Our sin is always said, I want life on my own. And God overrides us brings us into fellowship with himself by grace and that's what this table is about 
Verse 23 says uh, he's going to keep us blameless into the coming of Lord Jesus. And as we take these elements, Paul says elsewhere in his writings, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We look back to a past event, its present significance, and its future culmination. So on the night he was betrayed, if you'll take the little wafer off the top membrane there, Jesus gathered his disciples, taught them a lot about what the Holy Spirit would do in his absence, and then he said, you know, I'm going away. I'm going to suffer. And we all know what was coming. They didn't, but they did momentarily, hours from there. He was going to die. Though he was flawless, he who knew no sin was going to become sin for us. He's going to be treated as if he was guilty of everything wrong and not doing everything right, although he had never done anything wrong and had done everything right. And so Jesus took bread, he broke it, he gave it to his disciples, and he said, as often as you take this, this represents my body given for you, and you eat it in remembrance of me, and they ate. And at the same supper, he talked about a new covenant. Covenant language they were familiar with. They were under a covenant that if you obeyed, you got the blessing of God. If you disobeyed, you got cursing. And Jesus said, what's going to be different is I'm going to pour out my blood. And in that act, I am fulfilling every requirement of righteousness that God has ever had. And I'm also taking the place, the punishment place of everyone who has not done that as I have. And so he said, this blood, this cup represents a covenant poured out for you in my blood. And that means that you're not going to uh, have to obey God to get his acceptance. I've obeyed God on your behalf. And I've taken, you won't have to be punished by God for your disobedience. I'm taking that on your behalf. That's the purpose of his pouring out his blood. And he said, as often as you drink this cup, you remember me. And then they sang a hymn. Let's do that together. Let's stand and sing together. <clears throat>